This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Sometimes when you read parts, you're reading it and you know that there's a lot of work to be done to find it. And then there are others that just, from the first reading, it, it fits. And this part was one that just fit. You could almost see him in front of you and then all I had to do was step into it, to use a very pretentious term. Uh. <laughs> Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, so nice to hear your voice. Uh, who Same. is that other voice that we heard at the top of the show? That was British actor Tom Myson. Ah, uh, yes, I remember him fondly as Ichabod Crane on Sleepy Hollow, but what are some other TV shows our listeners might know Myson from? You're right, he was indeed Ichabod Crane, and he's currently on the Apple Plus show C. But you may also know him from HBO's Watchmen, where he played Mr. Phillips, or to put it another way, the male servants of Jeremy Irons' character, Adrian Veidt. And I believe our Slate Plus listeners get a little something extra this week? They do. I asked Tom for his thoughts on the way that British actors all seem to get slotted into either posh parts or common parts, and how he finds himself in posh parts. We also talked about the pluses and minuses of writer's rooms. Well, that sounds fascinating. And fortunately, if you don't have Slate Plus and you want to hear that, it's really easy to subscribe. You'll get exclusive members-only content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to articles on Slate.com without hitting that pesky paywall, bonus episodes of shows like How to Do It and Big Mood, Little Mood, and... You'll be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, now let's take a listen to June's conversation with Tom Meissen. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> uh, 
the simple answer is I'm Tom Mason and I'm an actor. Well, we might be calling you Lord Harlan if we are yeah. watching the Apple Plus show C, which is my excuse for talking to you today because you recently joined the cast of that show in its second season. I'm really curious, is it tricky joining a show that's already in progress? I mean, a lot of the actors have worked together for however many months and they're kind of in their own rhythms, maybe? No, it was easy. Hmm. I can imagine a, a world where it would be difficult with a different cast, but the cast are very welcoming and excited to see new people. And also in a show like this, when the world is already created, it's nice to just be able to dive into it. It's already there. There's none of the... Often with genre and you're creating a new universe, you, you find your feet for a little while. But they've found their feet and they're already running and I just, you know, slip in alongside them. What do you say when people ask you what C is and what kind of person you're playing on the show? How to describe it? It's a bit, no, it's a hard, it's, it's hard, okay, so I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you the, uh, the, the basic premise that it's set in the distant future, uh, in the near future from now, a virus uh, wipes out all but two million of the population and pretty much everyone who's left is without sight. And so then the show picks up several hundred years after that, where the world has been sightless for all of that time and... People have grown to live with it and build communities around that. And we join a, a small group who live in the mountains, which in the community, there are two sighted children. And sight has become, um, the sighted are heretics, and so are chased by witch hunters. And that's the world. It's surprisingly violent. Uh, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Imaginatively violent. Um, it's a, a pretty cruel world, which is why it was so interesting when I watched the first season that within this cruel, brutal world, that it was surprisingly um, tender. And it was so nice, particularly to see Jason Momoa play a really loving, doting husband and father. And that warmth really came through. And f seeing that balance, so it's not just a, a show about how do a group of people who can't see beat the crap out of each other. Mm -hmm. There was a lot more to it. It made it a lot more appealing. I have to say, I did not watch the first season, but I've watched several of the second season. And it's my understanding from kind of watching the, you know, previously on type of montage, that mm -hmm. this season is quite different in the sense that we're in a kind of an interior, in a kind of castle setting, which is Lord Harlan's castle, your castle, rather than what feels like was effectively kind of a tundra situation, very much outdoors, snowy, outdoor battles. We've kind of moved toward indoors and palace intrigues. Um, is that accurate? Yes. And how does your character fit in? Well, that's another thing that was interesting about joining an already established show is although the world had been established, it's now about building on that world. So the first season, which was shot over in Vancouver, largely on Vancouver Island. So, mm. I mean, the scenery is incredible. And they were living out there and living a rough life and are forced to leave rough, but also idyllic. They, yeah. It was beautiful. They're forced to leave there into these cities that they'd never experienced before. And so I was able to bring a new shade to the show they hadn't seen in the first season. With, like you say, it's more about the political intrigue of these uh, new warring lords. As a sighted person, did you have any concerns about playing a blind character? Yes, uh, yes, yeah. immediately. So how did you deal with that? By talking to the creators about um, it being treated respectfully. I mean, I didn't want to come on and do a caricature of people who are blind. It's a section of the community that is um, underrepresented on screen. We think of screen work as being an entirely visual medium, but it isn't. There's a large audience who... It, it's very clever. You can have the audio um, commentary as you're mm -hmm. going along. So that was my main worry about playing someone without their sight. 
But after talking to them, just one conversation and talking to uh, a guy called Joe Stretche, who's one of our producers and he's the uh, blindness coordinator. Mm. And he lost his sight when he was quite old. Ah. And so has experienced both viewpoints of the world. Mm-hmm. And he worked with Charlie Cox on Daredevil when he was playing a character who was blind and has worked with many other actors. And talking to him about it, he is one of the most important people on set. He's there mm-hmm. all the time with a team of movement people. They're always behind the monitor checking up on us to make sure that we don't nod when someone when we're affirming something or shake our heads or... Tom with his stupid hands pointing at things and, you know. <laughs> so I thought not only is that great because it's a respectful representation, but also I've never done it before. Mm. And that's all I want from my career is to do things that I've never done before. So you mentioned a few things, nodding, shaking the head, hand gestures. What else was involved in kind of preparing for this role, which I realised isn't just about it being a, a sightless person, just how did you go about preparing? Well, I came at a few weeks early so that I could have a lot of sessions with Joe and his team. And it wasn't just about, um, you know, how I get around and find doors and find things on a table, although there was obviously a lot of that. It was more just being comfortable losing one of your senses. I think that's often the problem when you see sighted actors playing sightless parts is there's some element of uh, it's almost surprise for mm. them because suddenly they're suddenly they've they've lost one of their senses whereas people who are blind don't have that surprise because it's their world mm-hmm. so we we spend a long time uh, settling in so that it's not an intimidating experience or a new experience it's one that you can just wear like your costume You've mentioned that it was a very welcoming set, but how was this set and this filming experience different because almost all the characters are supposed to be blind? That must change a lot of the the kind of shorthand ways, the quick ways you indicate things. Well, it's exactly that. We're so used to finding quick ways to uh, show our thoughts and you have to find a new vocabulary, both with your hands, for me, and also just how you look at people and how you look away from people. You know, I, we like to look people in the eye or we look away or we can give someone a, a furtive look that can mean anything you want it to mean. Mm-hmm. But that language is gone. So we have to find different ways. And it seems largely to do with it then becomes much more physical. It's about contact with each other and proximity to each other. For example, the Queen who is a psychopath mm-hmm. and no one can come near her unless they want to be killed. That was a way in to Harlan's thoughts about her was pushing the boundaries. The Queen, no one can get near her, so what am I going to do? I'm going to go right up next to her and I'm going to give her a punch on the arm because that's testing the water. I know she can't slit my throat. Yeah, we actually have a clip of your character getting a little too close to the Queen. Let's listen. Mmm. Oh, yeah. I love the smell of a lavender milk bath. Oh, Harlan. You have a dangerous tendency toward the informal. Some might mistake it for disrespect. On the contrary. I relish our history together. So that's part of the power games between us. And it's also for... Sylvia, who plays the Queen, it's something that the character's never experienced before. No one's ever gone up to her and given her a little jostle or got too close or turned away from her to yeah. speak. So it, that was particularly exciting to find a new language. Are there any things that, other again, other than these, these ones that you already mentioned, any things that people said, don't get into this? You know, one, I know one of the tropes of the way that many blind characters are introduced in the movies is like you know a blind person falls in love with someone because they you know they're not hung up on appearance are there any were there any sort of things like that that were just like it's too cliche we're not doing that that's off the table for this show um face touching was one 
one of the tropes is that you know people who are blind go and yeah, yeah touch faces so that they get to well no that was one <laughs> of the first things joe said no <laughs> <laughs> um yeah what else oh just the the what your eyes do so it's not about just glazing over and looking into the middle distance it, it, there has to be a fire behind them there has to be a brain behind them mm. and so there are different techniques to although you're not using your eyes you're showing that they're not switched off i'd like to talk about a couple of other roles you've done in in recent years if that's okay um please you played ichabod crane in sleepy hollow a show that i i think <laughs> I watched every episode. I think it was great fun. Did you? Oh, good. Uh, Thank you. Yes. Your performance was extraordinary, very charismatic, great chemistry with your co-lead, Nicole Bahari, who's a wonderful actress. And he was a great character because he was a know-it-all, but also somehow very likable. What do you remember about that role and that experience? I love that you say he was a know-it-all, but very likable. <laughs> I think that the likability comes from, yes, he's a know-it-all, but he knows he doesn't know it all in yeah. in the modern world. Right. For, lis- for listeners who didn't watch the show, he was out of time. He was somebody from a different century, Ichabod Crane, who was actually transported to our contemporary period. That building used to be a livery stables. Huh? Well, now it's a Starbucks where they make coffee. That building is also a Starbucks. Yep. How many are there? Per block. Is there a law? So, yes, the, the, the fish out of water trope. And again, you want to avoid tropes with yeah. it. That was one of those parts. There are Sometimes when you read parts, you, you're reading it and you know that there's a lot of work to be done to find it and to be... Um, imaginative and clear with it and then there are others that just from the first reading it it fits Mm -hmm. and this part was one that just fit you could kind of picture him who he is and how he thinks you could almost see him in front of you and then all I had to do was step into it to use a very pretentious um, term (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah so that came relatively easily Mm. to begin with and then as you say Nicole Bahari who I don't know how it happened it just worked Mm. we are both from very different schools of acting but desperately wanted our scenes to be good Mm. particularly the scenes that on the page weren't quite so good we then wanted to work extra hard together and it was always about being together. These two characters were a team rather than one of us trying to one-up the other, yeah. which can often happen. Since you mentioned now your school of acting, what kind of actor do you consider yourself to be? Oh, God. <laughs> a hammy one. Um, I can't really talk about this without falling into generalisations, but people often ask about the difference between American and English actors and I suppose it all comes down to it starts in the 50s I think where the American school focused on the actor and that's where the method arose and it was about the actor bringing themselves to the role and it gave us the best people we've ever seen on stage or screen whereas the English school at exactly the same time became very focused on the writer. And so the role of the actor wasn't to bring themselves to the role, but to bring the role to them. Again, I only speak in generalizations and incredibly pretentiously, but it's all about the the writing. Mm. That seems to me, and I'm sure people will get very angry and, and shout at me for saying it, to be the two, that's where there was a fork in the road but mm-hmm. when I was at drama school many years ago, that was still very much the focus. You focus on the, the play. And rep theatre. You know, when, back in the days of rep, when yeah. you're doing a new play every two weeks yes. uh, to the same audience in the same town, yeah. if you were playing the same character, 
If you were bringing yourself and being the same character every fortnight, there'd be mutiny and you'd be chased out of the Bolton octagon before you could say, <laughs> <Hey>. you know. <laughs> um, and that's why we created a very different style, but also very brilliant type of actor who are now all knights and dames yes. because they can change because for the first however many years of their careers, they had to change every two weeks. Yeah. Whereas now, my generation, we, we cut our teeth on, you know, episodes of Lewis yes. and Midsummer Murders and things, right, and you don't right. really get much of that opportunity. It's very interesting that you, your, your thoughts on the method, it's making me think of a, an interview I did with uh, Alison Wright, who's a British actress, but who came to America. Oh, in The Americans. Yeah, exactly. Oh, she came great. to America to study the method. And she's really mostly worked in America. I don't think she's really done anything much in Britain. Um, but she, in fact, used a very similar term. She said, when you can't find the character on the page, when the writing's just not there, then you go into your, as she put it, you know, you've got all this, all these things in a shoebox and you go to your shoebox. So you actually kind of made a very similar kind of uh, similar image. Um, well, they, so they have, both lead to the same yeah. Point, really. Yeah. An old teacher of mine used to say, there's more than one way to get to Leicester Square. And so <laughs> yeah. we all come at it from different routes, but we all get to the same point. I think yeah. even Stanislavski, I think, and again, I'll, I'm probably wrong and I'll be shouted at, <laughs> but even he uh, said the method is kind of a last resort if mm. you can't find it with your imagination. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Tom Meissen after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, listeners. We want to hear from you. Are there guests you want us to feature? Do you need some advice on a creative problem? Like maybe you have a question about research or negotiating a tough collaboration or, or really anything at all. Let us know what you're thinking or what questions you have. Shoot us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. Oh, and if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. All right, enough out of me. Now back to June's conversation with Tom Meissen. Let's talk about your role in Watchmen, one of the best shows of the last few years. And you I played, agree. I don't even know what to call it, a clone, is that right? Um, many clones. Yeah, yeah, right. So basically a character who was immortal. Whenever he was killed, he would reappear shortly afterward. How do you approach a character who's very convincingly human but isn't quite human? It was one of the most satisfying and fun jobs that I've ever done. I remember having a very, very long conversation with Damon Lindelof when it was offered. And I was on holiday. I was in, in the south of France, sitting under a tree, chatting to Damon about Watchmen and comics generally. And he is such a precise writer. I think the reason he's one of the best on telly is because his precision and his world building and his character building is is unique and yet these parts because of the nature of who they are the dialogue is sparse and when he does speak it's very simple oh sir forgive me i shall require the watch i gifted you as a prop oh has it ever occurred to you mr phillips you are the prop. Which actually just meant there was a blank canvas to do whatever I wanted. And luckily, Damon, you know, is very trusting of actors and said, just go for it. So when I, I read for it, I put myself on tape back in London. 
And he said afterwards, the reason I liked your tape was because you did lots of different things. And that's what we need. So just go and find out the differences. Find out how these 30, 35 clones of exactly the same person, how can you make them different? So it was just thinking about because Jeremy Irons' character clones all of them to mm-hmm. be servants around the house. So that's a good starting point. There are servants around the house. So there's one who spends all of his days retiring the stable roof. There's another one on his hands and knees, um, probably clipping the, the grass with uh, scissors. And there's another one who's there to be quiet but present to serve him uh, as a butler. So all of them have different roles, and each of those different roles will have a different effect on them physically. The one on his hands and knees, uh, maybe he's got a bad back. The one who uh, tars the stable roof, maybe last week he fell off the roof and uh, hurt his arm. Mm. The guy who serves him as a butler, he knows that he has to be very still or else Jeremy's character is going to kill him. That's on the, the larger scale of who they are. Then you can start playing around with, well, there's one who maybe he was uh, raking the gravel of the driveway and the last time he saw Jeremy's character was a few days ago and Jeremy's character kicked him in the balls. So now he, you know, cowers every time he sees him. Or there's one who just absolutely hero worships him and thinks uh, Jeremy's character is like Justin Bieber and is obsessed or or someone from K-pop. And he's obsessed with him and has never had a bad experience. And maybe Jeremy once stroked his head. And so that's what's brilliant about it's not that there's nothing in the writing. It's that there's every opportunity in the writing. And part of Damon's precision is knowing when to be ambiguous. And that ambiguity meant that we could just play around a lot. And then I would have costume fittings. And the costume designer and I would then discuss each of these parts and what the job is. And she'd say, okay, and then she'd go off and find a piece that suited the stable boy or suited the the cook. And then we'd play around with with that and everything kind of fell together from nothing. Yeah. Quite often, the holes in a script are actually the, the real gifts. You don't have to fill in it on the page. It doesn't have to be entirely backstory and their motivation. That's kind of the actor's homework is to bring that. I have to say that despite having watched, uh, you know, as I said, every episode of Sleepy Hollow and really being into Watchmen, it was several episodes before I kind of connected Mr. Phillips and Ichabod because, well, maybe it's as basic as, you beard. didn't have a beard. Um, and I know you're an actor. I know that. And I know that you take on different roles, but the beard is so significant. So weird question maybe, but um, if you weren't an actor, would you always have a beard? And do you have a preference for a role that lets you keep the beard? Or do you prefer having to transform yourself? What's your preference beard-wise? I would always have a beard. These, these are the deep questions. These yes, are the big, heavy-hitting ones. What's your philosophy um, <laughs> of beard? I'd always have a beard, and my wife would insist on it. Uh, she hates my face. <laughs> um, and she's, she said, please, no more parts where you shave. I didn't, I didn't marry someone with no beard. Um, and when she very... Now that we're in the days of, of um, self-taping at home... She uh, is a very good sport and puts me on tape, often begrudgingly. And she'll read it and she'll say, this is a period piece, you'll have to shave. No, you're not, you're not doing this. <laughs> and she'd try and, you know, sabotage, sabotage the audition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. But also, it's one of the lucky things for actors, for men, is that we can change a bit of our beard, shave it in a different way. And there you go. Boom, we've got a character and we look like we're brilliant actors when actually it's just all thanks to the (laughs) Phillips one blade. (laughs) We talked about the different acting schools between the US and the UK. What's the difference between working on a TV show in the US and the UK? Uh, Apart from the acting, like just being on set, that whole world of, of making a show. I can tell the difference between a network TV show and a a cable TV show, Mm. definitely. And it's Mm. all really down to time. 
Sleepy Hollow, we didn't really have a great deal of time to shoot the episodes. So especially early on, they were, you know, for Nicole and I, 16 hour days, six days a week for eight months. And when each episode, when we finished filming, there'd be a week to edit it and then it would go on air. So we'd still be shooting the next episode when the previous one was aired, which in many ways is a, is a, a good thing because you always know what show you're on. When you <laughs> watch it, you get a sense of what the finished product, what they, they in inverted yeah. commas, want. Yeah. I don't think it's a healthy thing for writers. I remember saying to, I'm, I've stayed really good friends with a lot of the writers on Sleepy Hollow and I've said, no writer should be on Twitter because you get audience feedback. Uh, mm. And I don't think a writer should pay attention to audience feedback. Mm, mm. I think if you keep writing true to the characters and to the essence of the show, then an audience will enjoy it. But if you start trying to cater to certain pockets of the audience, then another pocket will be unhappy yeah, yeah, and then yeah. it all just goes tits up. Yeah, yeah. With, with cable shows like Watchmen and uh, C, there's a lot more time and there's a lot more money. I mean, budget, not yeah, me, I'm yeah. British, we're very cheap. <laughs> and, and that allows a lot more chance to explore, I think, for the actors and, and the directors. Now, this is one of those terrible things that you should never do, but this information I got from Wikipedia, and it says that you Uh, have written some, um, I think they describe them as stage monologues, which I don't know if that's accurate. I don't know what that means. They were basically one-man shows, and my wife uh, produced them. Um, Ah. It was some of the most exciting theatrical experiences of my life because we wouldn't put them on in theatres. We'd put them on... There'd be one underneath the railway arches in South London. One we managed to get hold of, uh, or she managed to get hold of, um, a crypt in Wilsdon <laughs> Cemetery. Wow. And it was put on there. And just anywhere where there was a space that isn't traditionally theatrical, we'd go and, and she'd go and put these on. And they were really, really exciting because also they were, it had to be one night only. Uh, what is so exciting about theatre is that even if it's a long-running show, you watch an evening of it and no one else will ever see that before Mm -hmm. or since. That's Mm -hmm. for you and the community of people around you. And that's why it's so thrilling. So to get that in a little secret location for a few hundred people for one night only, it was I've not seen anything else like it, really. I always think that theatre should feel a bit like you're going into a dogfight. <laughs> you shouldn't really know what you're going to yeah. get. When you go, you know, to the West End and you sit in your in your seats and you've got a velvet curtain and a gilded proscenium arch, mm-hmm. you're safe. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of my favourite theatres are, you know, they're they're dingy and they're down a back alley and you don't know who's there or what you're going to do. And you walk into an empty room. The, for me, the, the sparser, the better. Anything could happen in there. And that's why it's magic and special. And, you know, I don't want to get too into it, but the government at the moment in the UK with its abysmal handling of the arts and in fact, waging its culture war on the arts, it would be such a shame to lose that. But that type of theatre, where you can just find a shed in a field and get a load of people in, uh, is the, probably the most engaging experience you can have. For me, both as an actor and as an audience member, I miss it and I, I can't wait to get back. Tom Meissen, thank you so much for your time and for a lovely conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) 
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. June, what a delightful and very charming interview. I particularly appreciated the work that Tom and the cast of C put in to make sure that blindness on the show is correctly represented. It's not as simple as just, you know, not looking at someone when you talk to them. It's a completely different way of being in the world as as a physical creature, right? Absolutely. And it presents some fun, (laughs) I guess, challenges for the people who are designing a show with that premise. For example, they can't show any lights on the exteriors or interiors of buildings. There simply wouldn't be any, but we viewers still have to be able to see what's going on. And if you're wondering, because a lot of people have complained in recent years that TV interiors are often really dark, I guess to make them seem moody, C really isn't any darker than, say, Game of Thrones. Hmm. Tom said this thing in the interview that I thought was really wise. He said something to the, like the holes in the script are the real gift to actors because it's where they have the room to really bring their art and their craft and their self to the work. Uh, when everything is all laid out and explained, there actually isn't that much work left to do. And, mm. and that work is where your creativity comes from. And so I was thinking... Is this actually a larger lesson about collaboration? Like Mm -hmm. to get the best out of the people you're working with, you know, you have to give them real impactful work to do. So even if you like might have an idea for how to fill this gap, maybe you need to leave that gap unfilled so that they can come up with their own approach. Yeah. And as with all collaborations, it can happen in lots of different ways. You can indeed get really interesting, deeply felt performances or writing or music out of people when you put them in a position where they have to go on, you know, journeys of intense inner exploration to figure out what's needed. At the same time, I also know that I have really enjoyed shows and movies where it's clear that everything was on the page. And you can tell because there are so many words that it would be literally impossible to shoehorn anything unscripted or that wasn't provided by the writer into the work. I guess another way of saying this is that some writers, including good ones, are control freaks. (laughs) I'm not much of an Aaron Sorkin fan overall, but there are some episodes of The West Wing where I really have that sense. Or even Amy Sherman Palladino's overstuffed scripts. There's just no room. And that's no diss on the actors, just to say that there are lots of ways to generate great performances. And as Tom said, sometimes actors just connect with the role and they don't really have to do much to fit into it. Right, right. Now, you will probably guess, and listeners will probably <laughs> guess, that because I have a book on the method coming out, mm. the uh, parts of your interview about the method and the difference between American and British actors uh, were really fascinating to me. And I really loved his description of British versus American actors and that mid-century split between whether the acting is serving the writing or or what. You know, there's a quote in my book from Michael Kahn, who used to run Juilliard, who I interviewed for the book, and he said something to the effect of when Juilliard was founded, which is in the late 60s, the world of acting was divided, roughly speaking, into Americans who could be but didn't know how to speak (laughs) and Europeans, particularly English actors who knew how to speak but didn't know how to be. And that a lot of the work of the rest of the 20th century was about squaring that circle, synthesizing those two things. You watch a lot of British television, things that are aimed actually at British audiences starring British actors. Do you think there's still a stylistic difference uh, or have we come to resemble each other on both sides of the pond? I would say on TV, at least, I think 
Khan's square has indeed been circled because I think British actors are better these days at presentations of what you might call ultra-realism, which I suppose is being, if you will. In my head, when I'm watching British television, I call this ugly coat acting. Um, you'll see actors who in America would have been glammed up and gorgeous even if they were playing people of modest means and modest gorgeosity. So, you know, they'd live in really quite large homes with no piles of crap all over them. But in Britain, they're stuck in ugly clothes and pokey little houses. And so they have to stay humble. And I do think that that genuinely has an effect on their acting. But I'm also wondering if there's any way of testing that theory these days when actors work on both sides of the Atlantic, or at least a lot of Brits work over here, and tons of Australians, many of whom I'm not sure people who see them on television even know that they are Australian. So this really is your area of expertise. Do you think that training still shapes actually approaches? I mean, I think there's a place where training and style intersect, you know what I mean? Or training ends and style begins. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that you can always know from watching a performance what the training of the actor is. Sometimes mm -hmm. I feel like I can tell because I've just studied this stuff so deeply, but but yeah. most of the time I actually don't think that I can or that, that, that people can. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that, you know, part of what happened, if you look at movies in the mid 20th century or read about theater in the mid 20th century is that it's on some level, the American style, regardless of how you get to that style, what approach or training gets you to that style, like the American style won for the most part in that if you look at like a, a British film in the 1950s, if you look at Laurence Olivier, for example, in the 1950s and you look at a British actor today, the British actor today much more resembles an American actor today than they do a British actor of the 1950s. Do you know what yeah, I mean? I do. That, exactly, like yeah. the, the emphasis on erudition and musicality and precision, which is what a lot of what was going on at that time uh, and what American actors were derided for not being interested in. In, right. Um, I think a lot of that has faded for better or for worse. I mean, yeah. just speaking descriptively here. And so I do think that the styles of performance between America and um, Great Britain have gotten a lot closer to one another. Mm. Um, I also think that, you know, you can't talk about this stuff without mentioning things like microphone technology has gotten a lot better. Post-production mixing has gotten a lot better. So to some extent, even if as an American, you have completely foregone training your vocal instrument, you know, even if erudition isn't your thing, you're actually going to sound a lot similar to a more erudite actor of an earlier year because there's just so much we can do with your voice now. Wow, that's so interesting. But to bring us back to Tom Meissen, you know, I couldn't, as a theater buff, help but get a bit sentimental at his sincere pay-in to the power of live theater, right? Mm -hmm. That there is nothing yeah. like being in the audience with a group of people, seeing a show that even if that actor does the exact same script the next night, it's not going to be the same, right? Because they're not the same person. The audience won't be the same. You can't step in the same river twice. And that's <laughs> where theater's power comes from. I know that you have enjoyed going to the theater many times uh, uh, too over the years. In fact, I think our uh, our friendship began talking about theater on Twitter. Uh, and so. so are you missing it these days? Are you going to go back anytime soon? W what do you think of the live artistic experience in this very strange moment we're in? Well, you know, I had really fallen out of the habit of attending live theatre, you know, for the usual reasons, laziness, tiredness, becoming a person who goes to bed absurdly early. But after this forced withdrawal, I am experiencing like what I really recognize as craving, like I'm having hunger pangs for the mm. theatre. I still haven't been to a theatre, um, but that's more about other stuff that's going on in my life. And I was particularly convinced by Tom Meissen's case for site-specific weirdness. I mean, he really made that seem appealing. Yeah. So now I, I just want to go and seek out some crazy shit, you know, the New York equivalent of a crypt in Wilsdon Cemetery, which was a beautiful image that he presented <laughs> Someone should do a piece with the parrots in Greenwood Cemetery, right? It's oh, like, get, get, yes. get going. Someone do that. Isaac, before we go, I would love to ask you for some advice. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> I have spent 
Most of the last two weeks working on my book, Where Are All the Lesbians? A Cultural History in Six Places. And I have been in research mode for a while, but I finally got down to writing. Just one chapter, but it's a start. And I'm really experiencing this weird feeling, which is like the quality of that writing is not currently up to the standard of the books that I've been listening to for inspiration to kind of learn about writing contemporary history. I'm talking about people like David Halberstam, Robert Caro, Barbara Tuckman, who wasn't writing contemporary history, but is an amazing writer of history. Rick Perlstein. Now, rationally, I know that First of all, these are some of the greatest nonfiction writers of all time. And B, that I'm comparing my rough draft with their highly polished work. But nevertheless, I'm going through this, this torture. And I suspect I'm not the first person to deal with this problem of comparison. I'm not worried about influence. I would love to be influenced by them. I'm worried that I'm just not up to the proper level. So... Your book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, will be out in February 2022, and it's already available for pre-order. So I have to ask, do you have any tips for how I can avoid this? Or maybe can I get Robert Caro to pay rent on the space he's taken up in my head? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think serve him with papers. That's the first <laughs> thing, you know, uh, uh, for back rent. That's definitely your first move. No, I mean... This is what I would say. My number one piece of advice to you is to stop listening to those books mm -hmm. and to just just not not have anything to do with them. And I'm not saying that because I think all writers should avoid influence. I'm actually, you know, you know me, I'm team influence. I love <laughs> exactly. influence, right? So yes. it's, it, it has nothing to do with that. It's just that it's fucking with your head, yeah. you know? And so yeah. for your own health, just stop listening to them. I bet you know what good nonfiction cultural history writing is supposed to sound like. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, I, I yeah. think you know that already and you don't yeah. actually need to be listening to those things to figure mm -hmm. that out. Yeah. Um, I did not, other than for research for my own book, I did not do a lot of reading of cultural history while I was working on the method. Actually, most of the reading I was doing outside of research um, I was reading novels. And mm -hmm. part of the reason is that I find reading fiction more pleasurable. But another reason was that what I really wanted to figure out how to do in my book was keep the structure organized in such a way and the narrative tension managed in such a way that once the reader was reading it, they wouldn't want to stop. Because it covers a whole century. It's 400 pages long plus endnotes, you know, like it's a big book on a big subject and heady stuff. And I just wanted it to be compelling enough that people would keep reading it. And yeah. actually reading cultural history was not going to teach me how to do that. Reading novels was going to teach me how to do mm. that, you know? And yeah. so the tools you need might have nothing to do with what Robert Caro would do. I would also say that, you know, like if I close my eyes and I imagine a nonfiction book by you and I'm reading it, well, first of all, of course I am loving it because because I love your writing and I want to read whatever you have to write. But also, I don't think it would sound like any of those people. Yeah. I don't think your writing voice sounds anything like David Halberstam and, or Rick Perlstein. And that's no knock on them. Yeah. They're great writers. Yeah, they're great it's writers. just they're, they're, they can't write the book that June Thomas would write. Mm -hmm. And your job is to write the book that June Thomas would write. That's what mm -hmm. you were hired to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wouldn't worry about making it some abstract received idea of what good writing is, mm. I would pay more attention. The question to ask is less about how do I make this good and more what does this book actually need? Mm. Like what does the book need from me to be its best self and keep faith with the book and the artistic project you have? And the good writing will come out of that because you are already a good writer. Um, the last piece of advice is just something you already know. You even said it, but I'm just going to repeat it so that someone other than you is saying it. You have to write it badly in order to write it well. <laughs> All writing is rewriting. My rough drafts were disasters. All of those writers go through draft after 
draft or they have assistants who do some of the drafting for them and then they're rewriting it after that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the method, each of the three parts of the method went through many drafts and then as a full book, it went through several drafts. Uh, You know, it went through more than one before my editor saw it. He gave me big notes on it. I rewrote it. He then did a line edit. I rewrote it. There was a copy edit. I rewrote it. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, it's got so far to go before people are going to expect it or you should expect it to be of professional finish quality. So stop listening to those books. Be (laughs) kind to yourself, but rigorous about your work and just do what the book demands of you. That's my advice. Wow, Isaac, that is amazing advice. Uh, And I already see the wisdom of it. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Listeners, if you want to ask Isaac and even me a question I don't know if I can't guarantee that I will offer that quality of advice, but please send us your questions. We love to answer them. Send us an email at working at slate.com or you can also leave a message. Give us a ring at 304-933-WORK and uh, we'd love to try and help. Thank you for your kind words, June. And and for those of you out there, we hope that you've enjoyed the show. If you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And now let me tell you about how awesome a Slate Plus membership is one last time. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to all the articles on Slate.com, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. But I also hope you would like to support the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. And to learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Tom Meissen for being our guest this week. And thank you to our wondrous producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for Isaac's conversation with veteran actor Alessandro Nivola, who is currently playing Dickie Moltisanti on The Many Saints of Newark. Until then, get back to work.